Welcome to Blink of an Eye, where we interview thought leaders and deep thinkers on trauma healing wisdom. Blink of an Eye brings you a collection of unparalleled and diverse views as we take you on an inspiring and unvarnished look at the true nature of trauma in all our lives. We have some thrilling news to share with you. As we gear up for an incredible new season five, we wanna keep the excitement alive by revisiting some of our timeless favorites. While we're hard at work crafting an enthralling new story arc with a narrative focus for season five, we are thrilled to bring back some cherished episodes from our archives. These hand-picked episodes have been fan favorites and contain the essence of what makes Blink of an Eye so special. Whether my spinal cord injury origin story, a trauma healing learning, or an SCI hero from the Dear Louise series, they'll offer a nostalgic journey and a chance to relive and re-engage with some of the most captivating moments that have shaped our podcast history. Rest assured, this isn't just a rehash of the past. It's a celebration of the incredible stories, insights, interactions, and conversations that you, the listeners, have reported to us that have made an impact on your lives. Join us in an opportunity to delve into the archives to dust off these gems and ensure they shine as brightly as the day they were first released. And stay tuned for other bonus episodes while we create a brand new immersive season ahead. Thank you for being part of the Blink of an Eye podcast family and supporting Blink of an Eye nonprofit. Sending love. Welcome to Blink of an Eye, life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down, and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Life can change in the blink of an eye. It was 5.13 p.m. on August the 5th, 2015, about an hour and 15 minutes after I had received the call telling me my son Archer had been in a catastrophic diving accident and that he couldn't move and maybe his neck was broken. I had arrived at the Atlantic City Hospital with no memory of how I drove north on unfamiliar routes for about 60 minutes. I entered the hospital through a back entrance looking for Archer. Is this where my son is? Am I in Atlantic City? The guards dispassionately told me to proceed to level three. As the elevator doors opened to level three, I looked around and I recall someone telling me to take a seat. I fell to the floor 
on my knees. Please, God, please have mercy on my family. I recall someone telling me, ma'am, you cannot be on the floor. I remember wandering around looking for a chapel. All I wanted was a chapel. I could pray in a chapel. I was in tunnel vision to find a chapel. I asked every person I saw, do you know where the chapel is? Please show me, is there a chapel here? I recall opening all kinds of doors. I can't find it. There doesn't seem to be one. I remember a lady, I think it was a nurse, taking me to a cubicle-like small room. I recall thinking, why is she asking me such silly questions over and over like, can you tell me your name? Do you know your address? Do you know your son's date of birth? Of course I knew those things. I remember looking into her eyes and telling her, I am Archer Sam's mother. Please tell me where he is and when I will see him. She kept asking me questions. I remember a different lady, a kind lady, I think another nurse coming and saying, Mrs. Semft, your son is on his way. But why isn't he here? Where is he? It's taking a while. He's being transported in a helicopter. We will let you know when he arrives. Oh, I'm in the right place. He's coming here. Archer's on his way. I remember that kind nurse. I think she led me into another little room. I remember asking her if she would stay with me. And I remember asking her if she'd hold my hand. And she did. 5.13 p.m. Text records show that I texted my husband, Billy, who is in Baltimore. I'm here, waiting in consult room in trauma, breathing deeply. He texted me back, say the word and we will jump in the car. 5.30 p.m., I texted Billy. Deb Riley, head trauma nurse, just came in. Not much news, except he's on his way. Another trauma case, too. Hispanic family. They're getting bad news. I've been moved to another room. Said he's under oxygen and they're stabilizing him. She said he's very dehydrated. 5.45 p.m. My next text to Billy, 15 minutes later. It's important to come now. I just talked with doctor. Oh, my God. Pray for Archer and for us. I remember that Hispanic family in the other room. There were so many of them, and they were all wailing. I remember wanting to be on the floor on my knees again. Oh, God, please have mercy on our family. Please, God, please have mercy. And then you showed up, and I mean, you, you were an absolute wreck. And it was so sad. And I could not imagine what you were going through.
And I tried my best to be as helpful as I could at that point. But I got to the point where you were asking the same thing kind of over and over again. And at one point you didn't know where you were. I think you had some shock going on. I wanted to be with God. I felt so close to him when I was on my knees. I remember the coolness of the linoleum floor, my forehead and nose on the floor, aware of how grimy it was, but I didn't care. My hands folded under me, pleading to God, please, God, please, dear God. You know, you see a parent figure, I'm just absolutely losing her mind and going through the worst time of her whole life. I recall someone lifting me up off the floor. No, no, I wanted to be on the floor, on my knees. I recall struggling. Please let go of me. Please, Lord, have mercy on my family. Please, God, oh, please, God, have mercy. And I remember the nurse, she was, I think she was the head of the department that was in that room with us. And she was like, listen, you have to sign off on some stuff, but you have to get some clarity. I can't let you sign things until you figure out, you know, where you are. Like, you know, you were almost at the point where they want to, we're going to admit, admit you for something. Yes. Um, and I just remember being so scared to see you like that. There's nothing we could do. And we just kept trying to talk to you and tell you like what was going on and trying to get you back. I learned later from my oldest son, Pete, 22 years old at the time, that I kept dropping to my knees on the floor and the hospital staff tried to keep me in a wheelchair and I would drop to my knees again, he said. Really? I was in a wheelchair? Yeah, he said. He told me when I wouldn't stay in it, they tried to strap me in and then they wanted to sedate me. He said, Mom, they talked about admitting you to psychiatric. He was my advocate. He told me, he said to them, my mom would not want that. She's just upset. I have no memory of my son Pete even being there. When he told me this years later, I marveled. I recently talked with Pete about it all as we are together piecing it together for this podcast. Here is just a part of our conversation, our longer conversation we will post later. Davis was already there from the beach club. Good friend and uh, employee or the manager at the beach club. So he was already there and you were obviously there, but then I was next to arrive. My memory is um, not even remembering that you were there. And uh, you had told me that I had been, uh, kept dropping to my knees, uh, praying. And I was in a wheelchair, they wanted to keep me in a wheelchair mm -hmm. and wanted to strap me in and, yeah. and sedate me. And, yeah. Sounds, sounds right. Yeah. You were like, like so upset that it was almost like, you know, people had to be like trying to like calm you down and like keep you like at ease. 
You know what I mean? Just mostly just like with like volume of their voice, I, I think. You know, just like screaming and yelling and like and just being so upset. Not like violent or anything, but just vocally upset, I guess. Yeah, just vocally upset. Not violent, but loud. Right. Yeah. And like going back to like the repeating of the questions, just like, you know, no making no like progress towards calming down. You know, and even if there was, then you know, a few minutes later it's just kinda all back to the start. I think it's really quite remarkable, Pete, that you told them when they wanted to sedate me and then there was some discussion about sending me to a psychiatric ward. And you were like, My mom would not want that. She's just upset. Yeah. I can't, I just want to thank you because how different it would be if I'd been sedated or sent to a psychiatric ward. And I was clearly out of my mind. Yeah, I don't think that would have helped anything. How'd you find it within you to say no? I honestly, I don't really, really remember. I just, I mean, I knew my whole life and never knew I needed anything like that. You know, it's just, this is like one of the worst things that could happen to you. It's clear that it just needed some time to come back down to earth, I guess. And none of that was going to do anything for that. Just a matter of time, I think. It's pretty remarkable thinking for a 22-year-old young man. Thank you for It's kind of impossible, I guess. It's just like, I don't know. I, didn't, I don't remember really thinking through it all. Just in like a knowing, yeah, like a knowing. I thank you for that and for knowing me so well. I thought what he did for me was one of the kindest, most heroic acts anyone could have done for someone like me in my state. I surely must have frightened him. Imagine seeing your mother like that. So when he went in then to see me with a little bit of sounds like you know or warning mm-hmm. that i was gonna be a mess uh what do you remember you just were kind of confused and I kept asking the same questions over and over like where are we why are we here what happened what time is it where's you know dad like simple simple very Simple questions. Very straightforward questions, but you know. It's the same like group of questions and there was another nurse there that, that was like helping. And she and I would give, you know, just the simple responses to all of them and then be a little quiet and then, you know, a couple of minutes later, like same like it's just like a cycle. Same question. You know what Pete also told me? He told me he wrote out on a small scrap of paper answers to all the questions I kept asking. He did. You know, we looked for it and found that small scrap of paper and all that stuff I'd saved. It said, you are in Atlantic City. You are in a hospital. Archer was in a bad accident. The nice nurse's name is Deb. All your children are with you. You will see Archer after surgery. 
I have no memory of that. But it did jog a little memory that, that yes, I'd wanted to know the name of that nice nurse so I could thank her. Pete told me he pressed that little paper into my hand as I sat in a wheelchair. You know, when he told me that, that jogged another little memory. Yes, I remember the feeling in the palm of my hand of that little paper and holding on to it as it contained all the answers I had been searching for. Such a kindness. As I look back now, I know I was in some form of shock. There was also a sort of weird knowing at the time that I was in shock, that I was out of my mind and it was just how it was. What's crazy is that Pete had to drive from Baltimore to New Jersey about two and a half hours, so it must have been 7 p.m. or so. I must have carried on like that for some time. I have since learned from wonderful trauma healers that what disrupts the natural healing process of the body and subsequently of the head and heart is when the body's experience of trying to shake off shock by quaking or trembling, when it gets truncated or closed off or, or just shut down. I'm continuing to learn about the body's response to trauma. The body generates so much energy from the effect of a shock, physical and emotional, as the brain is working so hard to recalibrate. You know, like um, how an animal, when it's injured and falls to the ground, can like all of a sudden spring up and literally shake off before darting away? We too need to allow that shake off of the negative energy. Let it discharge so it doesn't get trapped in our cells. If we're lucky, we can find a good person who can help us shake it off. On August the 5th, my being on the hospital floor, unrestricted and trembling, praying, was probably the best place for me to be. I have often thought that warm blankets in an ICU waiting area for families would be a good idea. The truth is, trauma needs to be cared for with love, and we shouldn't be afraid of it. It's a normal response to a shocking event. The issue is how we work with it and through it and how we respond to people in trauma, in caring ways, in ways that the body can metabolize those negative shocks so they don't get trapped in our organs and the recesses of our memories, triggering disease and nightmares. I think in our fast-paced, take-a-pill-oriented world, a lot of suffering could be eased if we cared for each other differently on the front end. I got lucky. I had Pete at my side. <laughs> Every person going to a hospital needs a Pete. Perhaps you are metabolizing some trauma too. Or perhaps there are old, unresolved traumas in your life. They can really get stuck in your body and sneak up on you later. Finding ways to release them, it's a gateway for healing. I, I want to explore that later with you in later episodes. 5.53 p.m. I texted Billy. 
It's important to come soon. He'll be operated on tonight once he's stabilized and doctor arrives from Philly. I don't remember being alone. I just don't remember anyone with me. Immediately thereafter, there was another text to Davis, the courageous lifeguard who made the call. He had texted me at 5.50 p.m. We are in the waiting room. I returned his text at 5.53 p.m. I'm sorry. I'll come get you in the waiting room later if you don't mind. I need to be by myself to pray. Please don't feel the need to stay. Honestly, what we need are your prayers. I don't remember sending that text. Davis texted back. We will be in the outside waiting room. We will be praying the whole time. Do not worry about us. I do remember that. It was such a kindness. I remember thinking, I love you, Davis, not asking me any silly questions. So I get on the phone with Leah, and she's my girlfriend at the time. We're not engaged yet. You know, it's just a regular summer, living a good life. And I make that phone call. As soon as she answered, like she heard, like heard my voice, I probably sounded just like this, but uh, even more freaked out. And she was like, we're not like what happened, not like what's going on. Oh my God. She was like, where do we, where do you need me? But I'll never forget how she just was like, you know, I loved her for that. Where do you need me? Not like, oh, where are you? What happened? What's going on? She was just like, where do you need me to be? She didn't ask any silly questions either. 6.26 p.m., 30 minutes from the last text. There was another text from me to Billy. It's hard to think. I took verbatim notes, going to see him. No bleeding in head, no injury to liver and spleen, C5, C6 broken, cervical spine, high injury, so more is affected, motor function in arms and legs will be affected, worst, death, but he survived, a lot don't make it, supportive, loving family, different classes of spinal, good lab work, place large IV in him, line in an artery. MRI. I don't recall talking with any doctor as I was waiting for Archer to arrive. 6.27 p.m. The text log shows I sent this text over and over to every family member and friend who had been texting me. Pray very hard, very, surgery soon. 7.18 p.m. My husband, Billy, still driving from Baltimore to get to the hospital, texted me, I love you. We will be strong for Archer. I am the one who is all broken up now, but I will pull it together before we get there. Recently, Billy showed me a voice memo he had saved on his phone all these years. Apparently, I had tried to call him but I have no memory of this. Hi, honey. Uh, I'm at the um, I'm at the hospital at 7:20. I honestly am not remembering a bunch of stuff. What? 
But um, I know it's about Oscar. I know he's hurt really badly. And uh, I know I could piece it together, but I'm just having some difficulty right I want to be able to take some notes. That will help me a lot. 7.20 on, um, what's today? What's today? Wednesday, August 5th. Okay, can you call me? Bye. It's crazy as I look back trying to fill in the puzzle pieces and make sense of day one. The last text I had before I got the call from Davis were to Archer. I was texting him to-do lists, and I was texting him I expected them to be completed when he got off work, my normal sergeant mom of five keeping the troops in line. And I was texting a thank you to my dear friend and Cape May summer neighbor, Kathy Gianoscoli. She and I were trading cooking dinner duty and being home base for our combined five young adult boys in our households those two particular nights. Her two sons, a cousin, Archer, and Archer's friend visiting from Baltimore, Parker Mitchell. I was on dinner duty the night before, and she was on dinner duty for the night of August 5th when I had to go back to Baltimore for an emergency mediation. Parker's mom had agreed he could stay since my able friend Kathy was on sentinel duty in my place. The texts were cheery, breezy, normal stuff. I sent them at 1.37 p.m. and 2.35 p.m. in the summer afternoon. I would have been on the road back to Baltimore probably by about 3 p.m., 3.15. Family reports say I made one phone call to Billy. And text records show I sent one text. Maybe I told you that already. But do you want to know whom I texted after getting the call? Kathy G., my friend and neighbor. I sent it at 4.09 p.m. I said, please take care, Parker. Archer had accident. I'm going to AC hospital. Isn't that crazy? I have no recollection of calling anybody or sending that text. And then there is this gap in time. The time I was driving. The time I was losing my mind. Time I don't remember. And... <laughs> I do have regrets on that day, of course. You always want to do something better. I don't want you to ever, ever have any regret, shame, guilt over having that thought. Because I think maybe you did. I did everything I could. I know I did. Um... Can, you, can you just pause and just take that in? Say that again. I did everything I could. I know I did. I did everything I could. Yes, I know. And I love your family so much. And I'll always want to be able to do something I could have done better. I'm always going to want to have done better. You think about things over and over again. You know, a conversation that you said something stupid even. Like, you're like, I wish I could have. Yeah. You know, so always think about that. Um, but I am grateful for every single person that was on that beach that helped us keep Archer alive. We could have lost him right there on the beach. Definitely. Definitely.
could have lost him right there on the beach. Praying on the linoleum floor of the hospital, I do remember hearing big sounds outside in the distance, getting louder and louder, flapping sounds like dragon's wings, getting closer and closer and louder and louder. The medevac helicopter that carried Archer was coming into the landing pad. I knew it was Archer. I lifted my head up to listen to those flapping dragon wings through the building. He's here. I want to see my son. I remember getting off my knees to stand and go see him. And I remember a kind nurse stopping me, but assuring me I would see him. I want to see him now. She told me I could see him after surgery, that they were waiting on a surgeon who was being flown in. No, I wanted to see him then. I knew he was there. When was I going to be allowed to see my son? My son Pete told me I asked repeatedly for hours thereafter, when will I see Archer? I want to see my son. And the answer was repeatedly after surgery. I guess after a few hours of relentless requests, they finally relented. The surgery had not yet begun. Mrs. Sempt, you may see your son now. They took me to the operating room. It was late, maybe 10 p.m. or later. It was impressed on me that any movement could be harmful to him. I remember promising in great earnest, I would do nothing to move him. I, I, I promise. They pulled away a curtain, and there he was. He was beautiful, sort of glowing, actually. He was on a high gurney in a simple neck brace, but it was as if he was glowing. I thought I was looking at Jesus. I remember thinking the acne on his face is gone. His skin, it was so perfect and beautiful. I wanted to be so close to him. I wanted to touch him, to hold him, but I had promised not to do anything to cause him to move. I remember many preparations were going on around me in the surgical room. I could also see out of the corner of my eye, a nurse along the wall, keeping an eye on us both. He was staring straight up. So I ever so carefully got my cheek up close to his, cheek to cheek. Hello, darling. It's Mama. Hi, Ma, he said. I love you so much. We all love you so much. Everything's going to be okay, okay? We're, we're right here with you. Whatever you need, we will be here. In that moment of connection with my son, I was restored. Everything was calm. I was clear. I was so clear. Archer was clear. Instinctively, I knew I needed to find out from Archer right then and there what happened. In my years of mediating, I know how the story changes. It does. We change our stories to make sense of them in our own way and to cope. 
I knew I needed to hear from Archer fresh the details. Tell me what happened, my love. Every detail. Archer began retelling, as if replaying a movie scene, every detail in a steady voice. It was so hot in the kitchen. I asked Rocky if I could take a dip in the ocean. I ran down the long boardwalk to the lifeguard stand. James was going in to cool off. I took off my shoes and flung off my shirt, and I ran down the beach into the ocean. There was a real nice wave, and I dove. I heard this loud boom, so loud. I tried to push myself up from the bottom of the ocean. I couldn't. I tried to kick. I couldn't. I was holding my breath and hoping James would see me. When he didn't come, I started praying to God, send James to get me, God. I was counting. I knew I could hold my breath for a minute or so. I was counting. How long had it been? The water was seeping in the sides of my mouth. It was filling up my lungs. I couldn't hold my breath anymore. I tried. Then everything went black. Ma. Yes. I talked with God. You talked with God? What, what did God say, Arch? He paused as if he were mulling something over. He said, I said, if it is your will, God, that I die, I accept. But my preference is to live. My preference is to live. It was the last I was to hear Archer's voice for over half a year. My preference is to live. His preference was to live. He knew he was paralyzed and his preference was to live. My preference was to live. It was such a sweet little epiphany. I should tell you that a couple years after the accident, when I asked Archer for the first time about the God conversation, Archer was serious, like he was trying to remember. And he said a bit tentatively, I think so, when everything went black. Today, I asked Archer if he remembers telling me about the God conversation and he told me he doesn't remember and thinks it didn't happen. There were times when I wondered too. In all the craziness of what unfolded, I wondered too. I am grateful I am a spontaneous note taker. The years of mediating and listening intensely to difficult dialogue while simultaneously taking verbatim notes had become a gift. I found the notes I had written that night. He talked with God. I sent a text shortly thereafter at 10.33 p.m. to our dear friend and family internist, Dr. Ken Williams, 
I forwarded to him the verbatim medical notes and another text that said, pray hard. I knew we needed to prepare. In the look back, when I saw the text log with Ken's response, I was flooded with the same feeling then that I had in the hospital that night upon reading his text. Dr. Williams texted, we will pray, stay positive. He is Archer, A-R-C-H-E-R, -E all in capital letters. He has always been amazing and will get through this. I remember feeling how much I loved Ken. It was such a kind thing to tell me. I thought you might want to meet Dr. Ken Williams. And so I interviewed him for this podcast. Here is a piece of what he said. We'll post the rest later. Do you remember what you said? Uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, this is, this is Archer. Um, uh, he's Archer and Archer is, has always been this kid that I've known that was uh, larger than life in so many ways. Um, I've known Archer since he was in kindergarten. And, you know, he was always the kid that was the, you know, the best athlete, the smartest kid, the nicest kid. Uh, he, and he just could, he was independent and just had all these attributes that, that made him so special. He, there are no other kids like Archer. And there are, I'm sure there are some out there, but Archer is Archer. And if anybody was going to get through all this, it was Archer with Louise. I, I just, coming from you, who has watched him on the sidelines and all the sporting games and matches and drills and over, uh, over his entire life, really, from the time he and John Paul were playing together in probably kindergarten, first grade, yeah. um, it, was, it was really a tremendous thing for you to text, and I thank you again for that. It was, it was all true, though. Uh, that's how I know Archer to be, and he is still Archer. You know, God has a plan for each one of us. At almost 11 p.m., 10.56 p.m. to be exact, I texted all the family members and close friends who had been texting me, please pray hard. Collective prayer is very powerful. He's badly injured. Surgery now for the next 2.5 hours. We thank you. In the blink of an eye, Archer's life and all our family's lives were changed forever. Everything changed just like that. Everything changed just like that. That night, for the first time of many to come, I had also come face to face and had had to go toe to toe with a system. That night, it was the bureaucracy of the medical system not allowing a very distressed mother to see her very injured son until after surgery. As I look back, I shudder to think, what if I had not been allowed in to see Archer before surgery? Or what if I had been allowed, but I was sedated and out in la-la land? Or what if I had been taken to a psychiatric ward? Oh, Lord have mercy. Yep, I was out of my mind. And all indications were that Archer was severely injured with a broken neck. But 
It was the not being able to see him that made my suffering so much worse. Yes, I was out of my mind. I mean, it's understandable why hospital staff would want to sedate or even admit someone acting as I was to psychiatric. Everyone in traumatic shock needs a peat. Oh, gosh, I think about had I not been allowed in to see Archer until after surgery, I would not have experienced being restored to a sense of calm, just, just seeing him and hearing his voice. And perhaps more importantly, had I not been allowed in to see Archer until after surgery, I would have never been his witness to his God conversation. Yep, following the standard operating procedures that night would have caused harm. The most potent medicine I needed for my fractured state of mind was emotional connection. But oh, sweet Lord, having that cheek-to-cheek contact totally restored me. And I think it was restorative for Archer, too. He may not have been able to feel his arms and legs, but cheek-to-cheek, he could feel that, and I could care for him. I am his mother. There is so much to understand about trauma, but one thing I know we must respond with love and do all we can to restore emotional connections between family members. The chief nurse who made the decision to allow me to see Archer, she was a hero. She was courageous to exercise her discretion in what I imagine was going against standard operating procedures. And it was the right thing to do. That night, the standard way of waiting until after surgery was creating suffering, not relieving it. I know standard operating procedures are written for many good reasons, the usual reasons, right? Like safety, patient safety, staff safety, order, smoother management, ease of operations. I mean, all good reasons to me. The list is just incomplete. Imagine if the usual reasons also included emotional healing for patients and emotional well-being of staff. That nurse was not just a hero. She was a little angel. And I bet it may have been restorative for her too that night. Maybe you have a medical story of being in trauma or one of your loved ones in crisis at a hospital and staff responded with care and love. Or maybe you have a horror story, perhaps a sedation story. (laughs) Opioids are a discussion for another day that I'll share with you in another episode. Write me at blinkofaneye at funnelradio.com. I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if all hospitals had trauma teams of body energy workers, and especially trained people whose focus was on healing and emotional healing on the front end? I mean, wouldn't it? And a warm blanket rather than a Xanax. Let us be grateful for the moment of clarity you had today in your life. Clarity not clouded by a pill or by restraints, or by paralyzing doubt and indecision. 
Maybe it was the clarity you had upon awakening or the clarity you had about how you would spend your morning or a commitment you made to take better care of yourself or the clarity you had to surrender your worry. Whatever it is, the ability to shake off negative energy that allows clarity to emerge is such a gift. And let's say a prayer together for anyone suffering today from trauma or from deep loss who hasn't yet found clarity. And let us hope for everything. Life is so precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Please subscribe via email on our site, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. If you have a story to share, please contact Louise Phipps Samps directly, blinkofaneye at funnelradio.com.